I really felt like there was a large part of me that I was not allowing to be expressed. There was a lot of unlearning that had to happen to really allow me to be free to truly be who I am and to find a greater alignment in what I was doing. Mindfulness meditation is a training that helps you develop and optimize your mind and your brain's capacity. Through this mind training, it's actually changing the architecture of our brain. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfillment along the way. Today is International Happiness Day, so the perfect opportunity to release a new episode looking a little deeper at seizing the A. I'm so excited to have Dr. Elise Bielu as our guest for the occasion, a doctor and psychiatrist turned coach, meditation teacher and social entrepreneur and founder of Mindful in May as well as author of The Happiness Plan. Just a few things on her plate and yet she juggles them so well, the perfect example of why meditation is so important. Having also considered everything from life as a jazz pianist to running a chocolate-making business and from graphic design to documentary filmmaking along the way, she is another reassuring example that the path to yay is not linear and that happiness is definitely a journey, not a destination. Just one year out from finishing her psychiatry studies, she made the big jump on her way to yay to go full-time on Mindful in May, a global campaign that teaches participants how to meditate through daily video interviews with world-leading mindfulness teachers and audio-guided meditations. So far, the initiative has not only taught over 30,000 people to meditate, it has also raised over $600,000 for Charity Water, and in doing so has helped over 12,000 people get access to clean water. Dr. Elise's book is also an amazing resource for achieving a lifetime of happiness, and I'm so excited to share some of the highlights with you today. Thank you so much for having me in this beautiful home. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Guys, if you were here and you could see what we were doing, you would know that there's a former lawyer and a former doctor (laughs) sitting at this table because we've both got so many notes and papers everywhere. (laughs) Obviously, we've both left those careers, but there are some things that stick with you. So before we start, the first segment is called Way to Yay, which is basically how you got to a place where you yay all day. But I always start first to break the ice with something that's super down to earth about you, because I think people who see, you know, the glossy exterior, particularly as an author with a book or as a founder of a movement that has touched so many people's lives, they don't often get to see the real person behind that. So what's something that's really down to earth about you? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> They're the best ones. I know. I knew you'd love that. <laughs> Which is, I don't know why, but I have a really bad habit of leaving apple cores in my car. <gasps> Me too. And it drives my partner insane. <laughs> and it's actually a bit of an inherited habit because I think my dad does it. It's this weird thing and I'm really trying hard to change <laughs> to break it. break habit. Do you know that's so funny? So I love apples as well and I – caused such a ruckus in our relationship because Nick's car is like 
you know, it's a rangy. Pristine. It's, it's like his baby. And he never goes on the passenger side. And one day he went over to my side and there were like six mouldy <laughs> apple cores <laughs> down the side. Sarah! <laughs> I do that too. So... Good to know that you're a human. (laughs) And it's weird because I don't leave any other kind of rubbish anywhere else. Like why is it just apple apple cores? Yeah, the apple cores are the main thing. But it's sort of a symbol (laughs) of this. It's interesting. I'm a Virgo. I'm not really into astrology but kind of interested in just being a Virgo, which means that (laughs) you're apparently, you know, super organised, super neat freak, control freak, this kind of thing. And there's parts of me that are, but the one that is the opposite of Virgo is this kind of organized neat freak it's just not who I am and I think the apple core is a symbol <laughs> Your of that rebellion yeah <laughs> nice all right so way tell us about young Elise so I think what lots of people like to hear about is the career journey but I kind of like to start even further back than that because a lot of the trouble in people finding their passion is that so much of what we love and what we gravitate towards we look back at, at when we were children and you're like wow the information was all there you know when you're in your child state that's when you're true your true tendencies and, and passions and talents come out so what was young Elise like? I feel like I'm I feel like you're being the psychiatrist now. Yeah. Tell me about your childhood. Yes, take us back to those <laughs> early days. Yeah. Tell me about how, how was your family? How did you? Yeah, I've actually know. never had like a psychology, psychiatry trained person on the other side either. So I'm like, I just need to watch what I say. <laughs> uh, so interestingly, I was thinking about this question and I think what came to mind for me was actually that. I think it's important to know someone's broader context to really understand them. Mm. I don't see people as individuals. I really see them as part of this interwoven tapestry of a family and ancestry. And so when I think back to who I was, I recognise that a large part of that was very much influenced by my family story, mm-hmm. which was one of immig- immigration and post-World War II Uh, So I have a story where all four of my grandparents came from Poland and came from sort of Um, post-Holocaust. One side had their families completely wiped out. So my grandmother and grandfather were one of eight and they were the only people to survive from their entire families, including siblings, parents. My grandfather even lost a child and a, and a, and a wife. So, and I don't mean to start this interview so, so heavily, but no, I, was it's reflect, I was reflecting on it and I think that this legacy uh, meant that there were certain kind of psychological belief systems and influences that really rippled down to me that I wasn't even aware of. And that mm. was around a subtle sense of that the world is a dangerous place, that things can go wrong at any time, that security, finding security is crucial and, you know, and that you have to work hard. So there was sort of, I guess some of it's a classic kind of immigrant background, Mm. but I think a lot of this led to me being a really obedient, (laughs) conscientious person that had this influence of it's really important to map out your life and be secure and, you know, be ready for the worst. (laughs) Which are not bad traits, I mean. Well, it has, it definitely has its positives, but I think that it also limits you quite a lot. So I think, yeah, the young Elise was very, I mean, I was naturally really curious. I loved learning, Mm. always learning different things, but was also, yeah, I was really sort of conscientious and I think quite sort of driven to 
set my path out quite clearly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say I was like the opposite of the mold of an entrepreneur. Like you hear about, you know, people that have these multi-million dollar businesses yeah. that dropped out of school or, <laughs> yeah, the or like the naughty guys. <laughs> I definitely was not that. Uh, that kind of came a bit later in life to me. <laughs> but but having said that, I, I was also remembering that when I was, um, I was reminded of this recently, when I was really young, like probably about five, six, seven, I used to create shops. Like I was obsessed with, I actually had a lot of businesses. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah, so, and I kind of thought everyone did that, which yeah. I think a lot of people do, but I think I was I was really into it. Like I was really into making stuff and making businesses and, kind of I took that quite seriously I found a marketing printout which was on those old you know the old printers yeah with the holes on the side yes so I found this little cutout which was a marketing thing that I did a letter drop box of my cake business like and it said so it made me laugh so hard it said you know would you, you know, what would you do if a friend came over and you found yourself without a cake? Don't be found without cakes. <laughs> Great <laughs> Buy a host. banana cake. And it was $2.50 for a banana cake. So there you go, inflation. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was going to say, wow, you could really be going strong still if you kept that business. <laughs> yeah, early adopter. <laughs> yeah. And so you ended up going into medical sciences, but did you always know that that was what you were aiming for? Or did you go through, you know, a rebellious teenage phase? Were you always quite, you mentioned you were conscientious, like from primary school to high school, did you know that that's what you wanted to get into? You wanted to do medicine and then psychiatry? I'm not 100% sure where it came from, but I know that from when I was really young, I was really, really obsessed and fascinated with the brain and with this question of how do you live a meaningful life Mm. and I think that was also influenced by as I've already alluded to the legacy of just so much sacrifice to be made by so many people and I just felt very privileged to be here and I just had these questions you know what is it all about why am I here what am I here to do and sort of being a doctor represented I think a path that I could really contribute and make a difference. And then psychiatry specifically was, I guess, how I saw I could learn a lot about the brain and really helping people to flourish. I was also definitely in- influenced by my mum, who was a psychologist. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. So I, you You've know, been we, around that. Yeah, we had, I grew up, there were lots of books around all of the different sort of positive psychology. My mum was also interested in meditation. So we had all the books like by wow. all the different, and I was reading and quite immersed in them from a young age. So I think that primed me. Um, but I also have to say, I don't think I fully understood what psychiatry was yeah, before you got into it. Yeah. <laughs> so for those who don't know, to get into psychiatry, do you have to do a general medical degree first and then you specialize afterwards? Whereas psychology is an undergrad degree, so you can go straight into psychology. Yeah. So you didn't think that you'd go into psychology? You, want, you wanted to do medicine? I, th- I think at the time, at the time, there were sort of quite different practices going on and, and I was... I had lots of conversations with mum and she kind of, I think, had her own frustrations around the limitations of psychology. She Mm -hmm. felt frustrated that when she had clients who were, you know, really unwell, she had to send them to a psychiatrist or somewhere else because she didn't have the breadth of knowledge that that was needed so I think she really you know she's also a learner and values knowledge so she kind of shared her perspectives and that made a lot of sense to me yeah 
And so I can imagine, you know, how long were you at uni for? That would have been a really long, so long. path. I think it's what, like <laughs> nearly five 20 years. years and then another. How long does it take to specialise? Yeah, so it's six years of medicine and then six years of psychiatry. Really? Mm. Wow. Mm. 12 years. Mm. I think I, you took me seven years to graduate and I'm like, I think that's an enormous amount of time at 12. So during that period... How did that career kind of play out for you? In that 12 years, you've got a lot of time to think about whether you're on the path that you want to be on. Was it all the way through that you still thought, this is where I want to be? Mm. Like, this is what I want Mm. to do. And at what point did you go into hospitals as well? Like, does that come in your second year of the second degree? Or, you know, how does that all work? Yeah, you, from a practical level, you ended up in hospitals sort of at about year four, of okay. medicine so yeah. yeah quite a number of years in hospitals working with patients I remember the first patient I had looked at me and said because I think I was like 20 or something at the time and they're like where's the doctor yeah. I'm, like, I'm the doctor <laughs> hey. I look so young they're like surely you're not going to be looking after me anyway um so I guess I would say that medicine and psychiatry expanded me beyond what you know, I mean, it, it was such an eye-opening career to be in the face of life and death, literally. Mm. You know, it was a real privilege in that sense. And, you know, I think I, I, I always remember that moment of, of in med school with holding the brain for the first time. I was going to say, that's, in my book, that's but the it, first it, chapter. Yeah, it really was this just incredible moment. I can't believe I'm standing here holding a human brain in my hand and we're investigating and learning all about it it was the most fascinating thing I mean I just felt like what could you be doing that's more fascinating than this that's how I felt but at the same time as I moved through the journey uh, there were things that were coming up that weren't yeah that I I didn't fully feel like I was in my place you know and I think that was a combination of particularly in psychiatry where I didn't realize that I would be really on the front line of acute psychiatric illness which comes with a lot of trauma a lot of actually sometimes violence you know there were patients I'd be seeing and I you know little me would go in and I'd have have literally four or five security guards for my safety and I you know I'm a really sensitive person so that environment was quite harsh for me and so I think there were things that were emerging that just were making me feel like oh I don't know if I can do you know I don't know if I can do this and also I wasn't I didn't feel like I was learning I was learning a lot about illness yeah and not was, wellness yeah and yeah. I was learning a lot about how to help people move from an absolute place of despair and crisis to okay but then when they got to okay they were sort of discharged from hospital uh, I just felt like I lost them then and I was really interested I, I, I discovered that I was really interested in taking people that other way the, the rest of the journey which was to flourishing to really reaching their full potential and so that's really where I moved into meditation I I wanted to understand what the mind was like when it was well and what we needed to do to actually potentialize the mind's capacity not just sort of fix Mm. it from being completely broken Mm. so yeah so I kind of I went into meditation as I said I'd already been primed like my mum was into meditation she took me to conferences etc read books but I I didn't really dive into it practically until later on where it came from a place of need yeah of just you know I needed the inner tools to manage some of the trauma I was facing on a day-to-day basis and also I was seeking you know I was trying to 
come closer to to my truth, to really where I needed to be going in my career. Yeah, and I think that feeling of seeking, of not necessarily like deeply unhappy with what you're doing, but just seeking the, the better alignment in, I'm sure the career that you had, you know, met some of those criteria, but then there was this whole other area that was missing. And I think so many people who are listening right now do resonate with that seeking feeling of like, I'm in something, I'm almost there, but I'm not quite there. And Mm. so that's a really uncomfortable position to be in because you've got to do a lot of exploring. It's scary to think maybe this isn't where I'm meant to be and how do I, you know, take a risk or or how do I even find out where to go next? And I I also imagine that at that point you're kind of worrying, has this all been not a waste, but, you know, you've spent a really long time trying to get there and now you're not even finished and you sort of start doubting like whether this is where you want to end up. But I also think imagine the depth of experience and perspective that you now have to bring to the other side of the flourishing because you've done all of the the deeper traumas and, and the depth of medical experience that you would have had but I know that in that seeking process you had started to go a bit outside of psychiatry so I think you took time off to study music in Africa (laughs) I read that you did documentary film in New York that you've also had ideas of being a jazz pianist of being a motivational coach running a chocolate business so many other things have you know come up in the story just reading about your seeking so how did that play into your studies and where was that on the timeline? Uh, I That's funny, the chocolate business. That was from when I was six. Okay, so <laughs> got the timeline a little bit wrong so maybe, there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but I think that it just, I think it speaks to the fact that alongside my scientific brain and my interest in, you know, what we've been talking about, which is really learning how to help people flourish and also the sort of social activism or social justice side of things which was really a strong calling to you know what what makes meaning for me is an idea that I can contribute to the higher good that I can somehow help to alleviate suffering in the world that's a really big call for me which also led me into medicine Mm. but I think alongside that I also just have a very strong creative force and urge which to be honest I kind of negated for a long time. Again, I think it was environmental and cultural. It just wasn't really valued that that part of like you know that was seen as you do that as a sort of side hobby. Yeah, it's um, not a career. Yeah, that's not <laughs> going to get you to safety and security. Yeah. Um, but so I, I think I had this kind of burning, and I remember I went to a conference and I heard Brene Brown say this line, and it literally I think it sort of just burst me open because it rang so true, and it was something I'm going to stuff it up, but it was something like unexpressed creativity turns to grief and resentment or something like that yeah it's on I've actually got the page reference before I think it's um let me find it, it was really it was really powerful and I think it just it really landed for me because I I really felt like there was a large part of me that I was not allowing to be expressed yeah and so that kind of then led to me giving myself permission to go you know what like I need to give this stuff a go. I've really got a strong calling. So that that was cut a long story short, led me I went to New York, lived there for nearly a year, studied film, made documentary, and then yeah, went to Africa, studied music. So I was just kind of this creative side came out. That was happening along the way actually, like yeah. through my training. 
Um, and it taught me so much, you know, and making a documentary for me nearly broke me. <laughs> it's so hard documentary filmmaking. I was over there speaking to my friends making the documentary saying, this is so much harder than medicine. <laughs> it's yeah. so much harder than saving lives. Um, it just, you know, but it was this really fantastic experience for me of being completely out of control because you're following this protagonist around who's just their own person and you're just trying to capture a story and it's all unknown and I had you know protagonists I I made two documentaries before the final one because I you know my protagonist just disappeared and (laughs) like all out of control and uncertain and it was actually like the opposite of medicine of the the pathway to medicine and it taught me a lot about learning as you go and trusting and it was a lot of unlearning, I sort of speak about that, that I think there was a lot of unlearning that had to happen to really allow me to be free to, to, to truly be who I am and to find a, a greater alignment in what I was doing. And I think that's the perfect example of the fact that your way TA is never linear. The people who have ended up at their great passion have had to do a lot of random things that really don't relate much to what where they end up, but it's all an important pathway in either helping you to unlearn certain things as one step and then when when that served you you go to the next thing until you find ultimately where you want to end up and there's in your book the happiness plan which we'll come back to I think in week two day six there's a whole chapter on connecting with what makes you feel alive and that's resonates so strongly with me about finding what makes you yay that's that's the same concept and you're such a strong example of the fact that you have to go out and explore all the different things even if just to prove that it doesn't make you yay to find sort of what does absolutely but also it does bring to mind that quote that Steve Jobs said about everything makes sense backwards that the dots line up in retrospect because when I look back all of these random experiences that I pursued ended up contributing to where I am now so for example you know I did spent six months in West Africa and I was studying percussion but that was where I saw the global water crisis you know I landed there and shanty towns and all you saw were people walking around with yellow petrol containers on their heads and you were Mm. thinking what the hell is this and then I quickly learned that this was people carrying clean water like that's what they do all day there and so I got immersed into this reality of actually seeing what was going on and that was a real driver to then lead to the idea of Mindful May which has that sort of humanitarian service aspect so tell us about Mindful in May not just the campaign but how you even moved from you know I I think it was one year to go in psychiatry and that's a huge thing to do to get you know 11 years into your studies I don't recommend (laughs) I don't recommend it to anybody and to walk away from the wards to go towards not just a different career but a completely different industry like you couldn't almost have in some people's eyes something more different than western medicine and then mindfulness meditation and now it makes a lot more sense knowing that it had been in your family your mum had been able to do psychology and have a presence of meditation which is quite a contrast I think that people find difficult to unite how did that emerge to you as I'm actually going to do this? Not mm. just I practice, but I'm going to learn to teach or I'm going to make it a career. Mm. It was definitely, it wasn't sort of a bang. Now I'm, you know, in this new, in this new place. I think I'd been, I'd been really pursuing meditation quite seriously for many years before Mindfully May emerged. Yeah. And you know, going on silent retreats, really, I mean, becoming completely fascinated and also just experiencing the deep 
changes that were happening in my own life across the board, like mm. through in relationship, in work, uh, in so many different things. So for me, it was, I had finished my psychiatry exams and literally one day I was sitting in meditation and it was like this idea literally came into my head. It sounds really cliche, but that's really what it was. It was this kind of creative moment, this creative bubble that was meditate in May. And then it sort of was like this pulling together of all these ideas that I'd been exploring over the previous probably 10 years, which yeah. were meditation. And I'd been teaching it in the psych wards. So, oh, you'd already said so yeah, this is yeah. alongside yeah, your psychiatry yeah. practice. So I'd, I'd been trying to integrate it and I'd seen some really amazing transformations in the private psychiatry context with people mm. that were suffering depression anxiety and we were doing these two-month programs so I knew and and I was also discovering the immense research in the field which was blowing my mind mm. so I knew it was really solid and you know it had such a strong impact so it was combining that wanting to actually teach that and take that more like go beyond just teaching 12 people in a room yeah so it was meditation it was technology so Facebook was just out and like didn't have sponsored ads and all this it was a free market it was just this incredible tool that you could shout your idea out to and reach people all over the world so I saw the potential there for yeah. pulling a community together and then it was the humanitarian thing it was like this this latent sense of I want to make a difference. I particularly have a, be- a bugbear about poverty. Mm. Um, and so water was this issue that came to me as like the most basic thing. You know, the fact that like one in nine people on the planet can't access clean water is just insane, you know. And so it was just this culmination of these three ideas. And I just started really playfully. It wasn't, you know, I had this kind of, idea that this could be really big like this could really like reach people and could be like this annual thing that everyone gets on board and I think Movember was already around so I sort of had that as a bit of a like as a testing a, ground yes yeah, but yeah so then I just basically dropped down my work in psychiatry so I went part-time and everyone thought I was mad <laughs> like are you having a baby I'm like no just yeah a just baby yeah exactly <laughs> and so I, yeah, I dropped down to give myself more space and I started chipping away and then just basically just felt into what the response was and the response was great. And obviously there was a need that I was meeting. So I just kept moving forward with that until the point at which I could not keep living this double life of yeah. psychiatry and running this kind of business. And I, it was, I think you were talking about the pivotal moment um, of when I kind of leaped across. Yeah, when do you make the full jump? And, I, and it's interesting to know that not everyone makes the jump straight away. Most of us do spend that little bit of time living a double life yeah. because you have to let your idea kind of form into a something before you jump to it. Yeah, I mean, some people do take the jump, but for me, I just it just wasn't right to do that. I yeah. just couldn't afford to do that. Yeah. It just wasn't, it wasn't right. So I, yeah, I lived the double life until one year it was coming up to January and my, I was signed up for my new job in psychiatry and mom for May was happening. And I just, I got body symptoms. I was just, I started to feel a bit breathless yeah. and just, it happened in my body. And I was like, what am I feeling? And I realized I'm feeling this sense of impending doom because this is actually not possible. And that's when I realized I actually have to make a decision here. I can't keep not making a decision and yeah. keep my feet in both both um, places. So I resigned from my job and I decided I'm just going to take the leap. I'm going to fully throw myself into it. I wasn't able at that point, you know, I wasn't able to take 
any wage from Mindfully May. So it was, it was pretty scary, but I had savings. So yeah. there was a safety blanket and yeah, and I leapt in and that was the biggest growth year, you know, up until that time of Mindfully May. And then I, I pretty much didn't look back. That's so exciting. So yeah. how long ago, what, so Mindfully May, the first campaign yes. was 2012, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And then you was, hadn't left though until how many years after that? I think that? it was, um, it was actually two or three years, yeah. That you were still practicing and... Yeah, I think I did two years of half-half and yep. then the third year I... I leapt in full, so it probably was about 2014 or something. Okay, and that's like, yeah, three, five. Oh, my gosh. Oh, what yeah. a journey. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. So for that, And, I, and, I, and I, I, I did have in my mind that I would come back to psychiatry possibly. It wasn't sort of a closed door, but in the end, you know, I just – this kept growing and things emerged and there was sort of – yeah, my direction changed. Yeah, so for people who haven't been part of the campaign before, can you tell us about the mechanics of how it works? But then also introduce people to who haven't heard about what mindfulness actually is and why it's been something that you're so you know encouraging and supporting of. I think one of the big things that people get confused about, I think you've actually explained it really well on page 16 of the book, everyone, the difference between mindfulness and meditation. Like people kind of think they're the same thing. Mm. They're very interrelated. Why is meditation something big for you? But it's called Mindful in May. Yeah, can you explain sure, a little bit more about yeah. that? So first of all, what Mindful in May is. So essentially it's a global mindfulness fundraising campaign. It's like a fun run for your mind where you register and you get all the resources you need on a daily basis through May to support you to learn and understand what meditation mindfulness is and make it a habit in your life so that you can experience the benefits and what people get is actually sort of this they get led by the hand and they get video interviews that I do with literally the world's most amazing experts in neuroscience the brain meditation Um, so you get the sort of science in a really accessible way that motivates you and gives you your why of why bother to actually put aside 10 minutes a day and then you get your guided meditations and the idea is that you commit to just 10 minutes of meditation a day for the month of May and it's it's optional but the idea is that you sort of shout that out and you get sponsored to stay accountable to that and the money that you get sponsored for the money you raise is um, goes to building clean water projects in developing countries so the idea is it's a clear mind for you and clean water for others so it's got this sort of win-win aspect to it and I think a large part of it is that there's this real sense of community and I found that that's probably one of the most important things that helps people stay on track and also the sense that yes you know there's lots of ways you can learn meditation now there's apps there's courses but I think that there's something really meaningful about doing something that fills up your own inner well and then contributing to a greater cause. So so that's Mindfully May. And, we, and you know, we've raised like over $600,000, built multiple wells all over Africa, had oh, people Elise, like, like Magda Zabanski has been like a big fan. She's been doing it every year. She loves it. Yeah, so it's been a really powerful way of just spreading this really powerful tool. Yeah, so I what mean, is this I, tool? <laughs> I did it uh, back in, I don't even know when was the first year. Was it the launch year? I mean, I'm not even oh, sure. Oh, yeah, I think it was 2013. That was Yeah, the, so yeah. the first year after. And back then, you know, I, I've done meditation courses since then, but at the time it was really the only community that I was part of that made it so accessible, made it easy, made the, you know, I was a lawyer at the time, so I needed that scientific statistic 
background to give me the motivation to do it. But then I also needed something to keep me accountable to do it more than one day in a row so I could actually see whether it did anything or not. And it was, it was the most incredible experience, the most supportive and eye-opening way to enter a world that I had never encountered before, really. I mean, I went because Samantha was Mm. there and, and she was a really good friend of yours. And I suddenly, that ended up getting me through what was a spectacular crash and burn at the a couple of years later in corporate when I wouldn't have had that tool I wouldn't mm. have known how to sort of give my brain a hug when I was smashing it in every other area <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good way of putting it yeah I mean the campaign has directly impacted my my path to meditation and now it's a lot more accessible and, and easier to get training but at the time mm. I needed it before that was all available and, and it's yeah been wonderful to be part of and so exciting to see it grow so mm. much mm. Yeah. so can you nerd out on us and uh dish up the like nerdy neuroscience neuroplasticity yeah of course because I mean that's the part us. that got me so excited mm. so first of all I just I guess mindfulness and what is it for those I mean most people kind of have come upon it these days but I think it really is it's like a it's a mental fitness training you know it's really a, a training that helps you develop and optimize your mind and your brain's capacity and I think that what we now know from science is that you know just having a brain and not training it is not really going to get you to the optimal like to your highest potential so we need to actually invest just like we invest in our physical bodies Mm. to keep them fit and energized and vital and we you know we pay attention to nutrition and and exercise we know that we need to do this for our minds and brain and I think now more than ever with external challenges like technology even more so Mm. so mindfulness meditation is really a training for the mind it helps us um, develop greater emotional intelligence it helps us develop greater focus and attention and this impact kind of ripples through our entire lives in quite profound ways but coming to the science so there's literally thousands of studies every year now coming out around mindfulness and the effects that it's having in different domains, whether that's mental health, Mm. physical health, work, productivity, et cetera. So it's pretty rigorous what exists out there. I think just to pull a few of my favorite studies. Yes, please do. Yeah, I think, well, one that, so. The impact on depression, depressive illness. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So because, you know, I was working in psychiatry, so I was running these programs and there's really rigorous research that shows that this two-month program, two months of mindfulness, this particular program, reduces the likelihood of relapse of depression as effectively. Some studies even showed more than antidepressants. (gasps) Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, don't all, you know, if you're on antidepressants, not not to rush out and stop your antidepressants. That's a really, really bad idea. Yeah, I was about to say, (laughs) disclaimer. Disclaimer. Do not do that. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But um, I think that... You know, it's a really powerful way of learning the inner skills to be, develop greater resilience, to manage your mind, to be a master of your mind rather than a slave to your mind. So that's one piece of research. Another piece that I think, I mean, this when I saw this, this is what really blew my mind. There was a um, researcher by the name of Richie Davidson. He's featured in Mindful in May. He's an extraordinary guy, meditator and a neuroscientist. And he put up these MRI images at this conference I was at, like probably over a decade ago, showing that two two months of meditation, he had two groups, one that wasn't meditating, the other one was, two months of meditation 
grew areas of the prefrontal cortex, which is the, you know, the CEO of the brain, the part of the brain that helps us focus, that helps us manage our emotions and not kind of act out on when we get reactive and triggered. Um, the part of our brain that's responsible for helping us make decisions. Mm. So it's like this really essential part of our brain. And through this mind training, it's actually changing the architecture of our brain. So, and you know, you could argue, yeah, well, so does juggling, but juggling the thing is that (laughs) meditation does this in areas of the brain that are really useful for being a wise, effective human being in the world. Yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. He also, in the same study, showed that it, it helps the immune system. So they did that by giving people... Wow, I think I read that. Yeah, yeah. They, they gave people flu vaccines at the end of two months and then they measured their antibodies and they saw that the people in the meditating group had a much stronger immune response than the people who hadn't. So again, like immune boosting. And then... A more recent one was around the effects on genes, which I find completely fascinating because when you think about you're sitting there, you're concentrating on your breath, you're doing something that is ephemeral and just mind-related, yet somehow it's rippling down to the level of your genes. And what Richie Davidson again found was that one day of meditation practice, which admittedly is more than most people would do, but still they took blood tests and they showed that there was a reduction in inflammation in the body. And that was because it was somehow turning down the volume of the genes that express inflammation. So we know that, and that's sort of in the field of epigenetics, which is how the lifestyle factors that we, you know, how our lifestyle impacts the the way our genes express themselves. So oh my gosh. it's really, it's, you know, really is profound transformation and this is rigorous science. So there are kind of a few things, but there are so many more. Oh, I love so much that it's finally been enough time for people who are like deep scientific background people. Like you can have meditation leaders who are neuroscientists. Absolutely. You're a fully trained, you know, psychiatrist that is also the founder of Mindful in May. And I think it helps with the skeptics who have at the very beginning might have thought that meditation was kind of woo woo. You know, it has come from a very spiritual place. Uh, But one of the things that my meditation teacher, who I did a course earlier last year, to train myself to do a more structured meditation like twice a day instead Mm -hmm. of just every now and then she was like it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not it still works absolutely but the fact is now we don't even have to convince people that it works yeah absolutely there's so much research behind it which is just going to make such a big difference I think for people's mental well-being our world is way too fast for our brains to cope with and it's more important than ever that there's there's a way to encourage people to get into it. So yeah, hundred percent. I think that you know, I think that the thing about the science that I find helps people is that there's this big misconception that meditating, you know, people go to meditation to feel calm or, or bliss mm. or zen or you know, for these fifteen minutes. And the problem is that it's not like that a lot of the time. That when you sit to meditate, what you're actually discovering is the agitation that's actually there with you that you didn't notice. And so if you think that meditation is about just calmness experiencing (laughs) a calm state when you're meditating and that's why you're doing it to kind of de-stress and calm you're sort of missing a large point of the practice and you're probably not going to stick with it because you're going to get frustrated and you're going to feel like 
you know, this isn't even feeling good. Whereas if you know that this is a mental training that just like going to the gym is going to feel really bad sometimes, you're going to feel tired, (laughs) you're going to drag yourself there anyway and sort of take yourself through it because you know that even if it feels bad, it's actually doing good for you. It's similar to meditation. So I think that's why that whether you believe it's good for you or not, it's it's going to have benefits. But the key is how are you going to stick to it when it's not feeling that right. good? And if yeah. you understand all of this background, then I think it gives people more motivation to stick with it. Oh, absolutely. I think the big thing is just the misconception. People do think it's meant to be really zen. But once someone explains to you and sits you down and says it might be the most uncomfortable time in the whole day, but the benefits are felt afterwards and that analogy with the gym it's the same it's like gym hurts Mm. gym isn't that fun I mean like it I mean it can be fun but you know it hurts and the benefits come afterwards if you see it as that exact exact same kind of process it becomes a lot easier to understand and once someone told me that I was meant to sit with the discomfort and that's the point of it I, I was fine. I was like, oh, I know to expect this. I'm not bad at it. You can't be bad at meditation. I'm not doing it wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. that It's meant to sometimes be your most agitated time during the day. But the point is to not add any more stimulation. In that 20 minutes twice a day, I don't add any new stimulation. Mm. I might not remove any stimulation, you know, like I might mm. not empty my brain, but nothing new can, can come on top of it and it all just kind of settles. Yeah, I think people just need to know. Yeah, and and I think then the question comes up, well, I was asking this question when I started, what's the point? Why would I bother sitting in discomfort? Is this some kind of masochistic practice, you know? Why why bother to do that? What is how does that serve me? And I think it's really about this idea of what Pema Chodron's called discomfort resilience, you know, where kind of in life we're constantly trying to avoid suffering. We're tra- we're wired to avoid pain and magnetize and move towards pleasure but if we're if we're unable like if that's the way that we're operating in the world we're going to be flitting around we're just it's going to be really difficult to actually find real happiness because you know we can't live our lives just buffeted by pain and pleasure Mm. so this discomfort resilience this ability to sit with difficult emotions it just gives you a greater I guess, wisdom, because you can stay with things and you can see rather than react and and quickly jump from place to place because you can't stand being in discomfort. Yeah. So you mentioned happiness then, and you've written a book, which is incredible. And and I highly recommend that you grab a copy. There's a new edition out. They're available in airports. It's everywhere. It's such a good, practical, science-filled, but also practical tips chapter by chapter on how you can integrate these principles into your life. There's a lot of the studies that we mentioned, uh, you know, there's kinds of meditation that you can do. There's the body scan, there's walking meditations, moving meditations, there's recipes, but it's not called the meditation plan. It's called the happiness plan. So how do you see happiness? You know, this podcast is obviously sees the yay is a lot about finding your joy and your happiness, but so far I've concentrated a lot more on the decisions that people make along their pathway to get to what their joy is. But from a more structural brain scientific perspective, how does happiness relate to everything for you? Well, I think that the reason that I wanted to call it the happiness plan rather than the meditation plan is because really, what is it all about? Why bother meditating? It's that we all want to be happy. You know, we all want to be happy. And that is fundamentally what I see meditation as bringing. And when I say happy, I'm not talking about, you know, there's different 
definitions of happy. And so there's, you know, the, the two that often come up that are contrasted are hedonic happiness, which is the happiness you get from having pleasure mm. and having your desires fulfilled. And that's what a lot of us get stuck on. We're on this, it's called like the hedonic treadmill where we're living our lives, basically chasing our desires and and we're trying to fill that gap between this reality and that reality over there, which we believe will make us happier. Yeah. And to some extent, you know, that's fine. And I, of all people, ask any of my friends, I love pleasure, you know. <laughs> yeah, I it's love not a good, bad thing. I love good food. I love hearing great music. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. But to establish your life solely based on that is not going to work because mm. it's not sustainable it's not sustainable and we know from desire it's it's just an it's this Fleeting. insatiable need that just keeps so you can never truly be happy so that's hedonic happiness but i'm talking about the other kind of happiness which is eudaimonic yeah eudaimonic happiness which came from sort of aristotle thousands of years ago and that is this idea that that it's not about you know, there's a way to find happiness that is much more within your control. It's not what you get from the outside world that is actually out of your control. That's a bit like a lottery. It's actually what you bring to life. So it's like cultivating these positive states from within. And also, you know, rather than living the pleasant life, you're, you're living the meaningful life. Mm. And all the research shows that this brings a lot more life satisfaction. So this is kind of research based around the work of Martin Seligman, the positive psychology movement. So really looking at, yeah, that this meaning piece is so fundamental to life satisfaction. So that's kind I love of, that so much. I think the distinction between two kinds of happiness is maybe the most instructive piece of insight you can have in your search for yay or for joy or for fulfillment. And that's why I often you know, distinguish between success and, and like money and wealth and happiness over there and then actual fulfillment over here. And I, I kind of think I, I'm making that distinction without actually calling them two different kinds of happiness to show people that if you're after, you know, the metrics and the flashy instantaneous gratuity over there, you're missing out on the deeper fulfillment over here, which is the eudaimonic happiness. And yeah, mm. once you redefine that all in your brain, it becomes a lot easier to mm. access that because you realise you go after things that are achievable and sustainable. Yeah, and that, are, and that are sort of actually within your control rather than mm. relying on the randomness of life. But I want to also just qualify that by saying that we all have hedonic needs. Like, so it's not, you know, there's a reality that we're all needing to earn a living. We all need to pay our bills. So, but it's once you get to that level where you can sustain yourself and at a base level, you've got food, you've got shelter, you've got health. Then from there up, it's like, what's going to actually bring you greatest life satisfaction is not the hedonic happiness. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's about, again, as I say, it's really not about then becoming this ascetic that, you know, denies all pleasure. It's, you can enjoy pleasure, but it's just, it's not the main driver of your happiness. Yeah. Oh, so insightful. My brain's going. <laughs> so the next section is called NATA, which are some of the big challenges that kind of come your way in life because life is up and down and you can't expect to always be happy and have your emotions always level and mindfulness can build resilience against discomfort, but it, it can't avoid discomfort altogether, which is not a good thing anyway. We, we need discomfort to grow and, and, and to contrast from, from the high moments. So what have been for you some of the big challenges along the way? I can imagine that, you know, burnout in 
when you were running two lives and now, you know, being a mother as well, you've got so many different roles and obligations and not the same amount of hours as everyone else has. Self-doubt when you were leaving a very stable career, particularly with the cultural background towards, you know, inclining you towards that, to walk away from all that, uh, knowing that you aren't going to make a wage from Mindful in May. You didn't have proof of concept at the time. And then the financial pressure and now productivity pressure, do you find it hard to switch off? You know, everything everything that's all bundled up in that. What have been your biggest challenges? Oh, where to start? (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm just having a think about that because I can relate to all of the ones that you just mentioned. So self-doubt, absolutely. I mean, and I found it really helpful to follow other sort of entrepreneurs stories because I think the people that are authentic will share that there's inevitably self-doubt all the time you know it's just there it's just there as part of the growth Mm. but I do think that you know as you take more risks and you face that and you just don't give it as much authority then it actually becomes less and and I think meditation has really helped me with that because one of the most I think transformative gifts that you get from meditation is a completely new insight and understanding about thoughts and what they are and how to be in relationship with your thoughts in a way that doesn't hold you imprisoned by fear and limitation. So for me, as I became, as I sort of more deeply explored meditation, I started to see that, hang on, thoughts are not as as sort of concrete and they shouldn't be trusted as much as I've been trusting them. Mm. And in fact, you know, when you, it it only takes you a few minutes to sit down and just be with your own mind and recognize that a lot of the thoughts, firstly, the thoughts that come up are out of your control. It's, it's like, you think that they're your thoughts, but actually (laughs) who's having them? Because you couldn't tell me if I said to you, what's the next thought you're going to have? Yeah. You don't know. You have no idea. (laughs) So there's a really strong element to the mind, which is that a lot of it's out of our control. So therefore with self-doubt or something like that, when thoughts are spurting up like a geyser and they're saying, you know, who am I to do this? I'm not going to be able to do this. Like all the fear thoughts, you can find a new position to, to take and a new relationship with them that actually they don't hold you back. And it's the most liberating experience. So I think that helped me in relation to self-doubt that I was building an inner tool to actually manage some of these difficulties that come up along the creative journey. Um, I think the big one for me has been meditation has taught me to not just get lost in my feelings, but to observe them rather than them happening to me. And then I'm totally consumed by them you're kind of like a third party watching your mm-hmm. thoughts and go, and picking which ones you give control to. And 100%. you're like, okay, cool, you're there. I can't get rid of you, but I don't have to swim into you. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, yeah, so self-doubt. Then, yeah, the, the juggle of business and motherhood is real. <laughs> it's really real. And I think that that's something that I constantly reassess. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's also acknowledging that, yeah, it's weighing up the, the, it's weighing up my very high value of like being a mindful mother and being present to my daughter, you know, mm. with this contradiction of like running a really big campaign and having that be very all consuming. So finding the balance there, it's constantly a reassessment. And do you find that because part of Mindful in May has that giving element and you're a giver and you want to kind of service your community that 
it's harder to put boundaries in than if you had a business that wasn't necessarily structured around giving? I don't know. I think that probably if you had any kind of business, you know, you're trying to make it work. Yeah. And, you know, often there's financial underlying drivers and concerns. It's real. So there is that pressure. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that are doing lots of altruistic things and, like, they're completely not delivering to their kids. Mm. I just think that's kind of ironic and certainly not what I want to be doing. So, but I also think that, you know, modeling values to kids is really powerful. And so my daughter who's three, she already knows, you know, she knows, oh, mummy teaches meditation and we do meditation. And she, whenever I turn the tap on, she's like, oh, we have to turn it off because people in Africa don't have water. You know, so she's like getting messages. And so, yeah, but it is, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And I think that one thing I've learned is that, you know, you just need to get more support and factor those costs in to your business, you know? Yeah, because it's, re- it's a reality of like you can't manage it all and without good planning you're not going to do anything properly. Yeah. So how do you do that? Do you have a PA? Do you have, you know, a nanny? Yeah, well, or I've how does got it all... probably one of the best mothers in the world, lucky me. Yeah. Um, so she, I wouldn't be able to do it without her. She's my rock. She is really part of the team, you know, and yeah. that could be from being involved in editing, you know, Mindful of My Material to yeah. actually looking after my daughter to helping with food. You know, there's a lot of support there. So that, yeah. that really helps me. I, I couldn't do it without that. And I don't think anyone can. I think we get this view of like the finished product often and we're like, wow, that's a CEO or an entrepreneur and she's out there on her own. But, it, you know, it mm. always takes a village. Mm. No one has ever gotten there without mm. a really strong support network or if they have, they're a serious outlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And I think it's good to be real about that because otherwise you know from the outside people can feel you know people that let's say live in countries where they don't have their families around or Mm. they can feel inadequate like how how does she do this and I've got a kid and I can't even get out the house in the morning or whatever so I think you know to know that I think to be able to do things in the world like that and have a family it requires a lot of support. And that's one thing I always like to unpack. I mean, I'm not not even a mother yet, but even just for my own kind of tips, it's reassuring to know that it is a big thing you end up having to factor into being a businesswoman or a career woman or whatever it is. It's always a balance and that most people struggle with it. Like no one has it exactly right. Everyone's, it's a work in progress, but it's never as easy and polished as it looks on the outside. Yeah. And that's a huge reassurance to everyone. Yeah. It helps their self-doubt because they don't, they're not comparing themselves to a a non-reality. Exactly. And I also want to share with the listeners, if anyone's out there, particularly women that, you know, have this kind of very business focused or entrepreneurial drive and they haven't got kids yet and they're sort of in that question like am I going to have kids am I not I really struggled with that because I really oh. felt like I had such a strong calling for my work yeah. that I really was wondering whether having a kid was the right path for me you know yeah. I wasn't one of these kind of clucky just did it you know yeah, I'm always going to have real, kids kind it of was person. a real like process of contemplation and I worried how am I going to do it all you know but I have to say that I'm so glad that I did I just think it's the most incredible thing, you know, and and I think that it just expands you beyond what you can imagine possible rather than stopping you. It just it creates this huge part of you that you never knew was there. So I just want to say that because it's something I so beautiful, something that I really struggled with. You know, I really didn't know what the right thing to do was. And now being on the other side of it, I think that women that are so career driven and, you know, contemplating not having a child because of that, I think like each to their own, but 
you know, just because you're doubting it doesn't mean not to do it. Yeah. And I think also everything great that's a challenge and that's new and that will extend you involves discomfort and doubt. It's a sign you're doing something amazing. <laughs> so the last segment is called Play TA, and I think motherhood leads really nicely into that. I think so many of us get trapped in this achievement bandwagon of like we need to be productive all the time, and we do get very separated from joy and happiness and really caught up in success and metrics and winning and goals. And, you know, we're a goal-kicking society, which is absolutely amazing, but we lose sight of having an identity that's detached from work or you know, productivity. So as a mother, I think that probably is something that if you were straying too far the other way, that motherhood draws you back to like the present moment, like Mm -hmm. your children's needs are immediate. You don't, you can't get too far away from, from what Mm -hmm. is happening in the now. But then apart from that, do you have an identity that's you not as a mother? Do you keep a bit for yourself? And what do you do? What activities do you do that are just for you, just for your joy, not Mm. necessarily for learning or growing, just because you enjoy them? Mm. It's a really funny question. I think (laughs) it's maybe my favourite. If my partner was sitting here, he would be laughing so hard right now. (laughs) It's like, what does she do that's not for her growing or learning? Nothing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm obsessed. I can't help it. It's like in every sort of cell of my body. I just, I can't help it. I try so hard, but it's really hard. Um, But I think there are a few things and one of them is music and the other is dance and I think that you know that's really my joy so I often try and get to music performances and music festivals I'm a big Wom Adelaide fan it's um, it's my religion I've been there every year for probably like 15 years except yeah so do you play still do you have instruments I have them all around the house (laughs) yeah I was just looking around yeah amazing um yeah I'm I'm not playing music much now although it is this aspiration that I still I still want to come back to and I find that music comes like actually playing music comes in and out of my life Mm. I really want to get back to it um but yeah music and dancing is where I really just experience a lot of joy and just nature so going you know walking on the beach is something essential and trying to get out of the city occasionally we try and do do you find that since you've changed your passion into your profession and everything about your work is meditation and mindfulness Mm. that then it becomes difficult for you to have that practice not seeing it as like a work-related thing no I don't see it like that at all actually yeah I actually feel like I I almost I do almost feel like it's not work yeah and I I feel like everything I really feel like everything is uh, what's the word like in alignment as in it's there's an integrity because I feel like I live and breathe this stuff Mm. in what I'm doing my work and I live and breathe it and I'm wholly dedicated to it in my life and that doesn't mean that there are days that I fall off the track of meditation and I fall out of practice but then I always come back you know it's really an essential part of my life and my beliefs and it 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 gets expressed in friendships in my relationship in my parenting there's no place that it's not expressed and so yeah it feels really good to be doing the work that I really believe in you know and that's why you know I'm so passionate about because I know it works (laughs) yeah I love that so much as well because a lot of people subscribe to this idea that work-life balance has to look a certain way and I think it's it's very it's amazing that it's becoming more talked about in society and more of an emphasis but it's also 
turns a lot of people off, I think, particularly mums, because they're like, that work-life balance that you're talking about, it's just not achievable for me. But what I love is that you that is your balance. You don't need as much of a break from your work as some people do, and that's okay. I think the most important message here is find what does make you feel balanced, and if that involves 90% work, 10% non-work, that's mm. fine, mm. even though for others it might be 50-50. Like whatever it is that gives you your joy, if for you it is doing reading about you know neuroscience and meditation <laughs> articles and that relaxes you and that's joyful, then that's fine. It doesn't mm. have to be completely unwork related even mm. though for others it might mm, absolutely but I just I also just want to make sure I'm giving a balanced view here and say that you know that's not to say that along the path of what I'm doing now there aren't moments where I throw my hands up in the air and say what the hell am I doing yeah. this is so hard <laughs> yeah. you know it's really hard as well yeah it's really hard but I think that ultimately it's also really fulfilling so it's just there are these kind of hurdles that you come across and my friends all laugh at me because at the end of you know halfway through planning mindfully my each year I have this moment it's inevitable (laughs) it's just the moment of it's the black hole it's the oh my god why am I doing this moment I'm not gonna do this again this is over last year (laughs) and they just all laugh themselves silly at me now because they're like oh yeah we know what date is it oh it's about April the it's April the 18th (laughs) yep right on time they know know? it's coming it's just so now at least I know that's just part of it as well so even when you're passionate about what you're doing it's still (laughs) there's moments that you just oh it's so hard what about sleep is that a big thing for you? <laughs> sleep, what's <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah. Motherhood and sleep don't really go together. <laughs> well, it's funny. I actually read a lot about the fact that meditation can it is, you know, the equivalent to some good hours of sleep. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't substitute yeah. sleep altogether, but yeah, it can yeah. be very useful. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think sleep is a bit of a joke when you're a parent. <laughs> I think the big secret that everyone keeps from you is that when you have a kid, you're actually probably not going to sleep for like 10 years or something. Well, some kids sleep. Mine doesn't. Yeah. She loves partying at night. So anyway, <laughs> so we, yeah, sleep is, is a different concept to me now, but I am someone that usually needs eight hours of sleep and yeah. I do try and get it. And I have a wonderfully supportive partner. So we sometimes do tag team and support each other in that. But yeah, it's a different concept to what it was a few years ago. (laughs) And to any beginners who might not have started meditation yet, are there ways that you can be mindful if not necessarily meditating? Yeah, 100%. So again, I like to use the analogy of the physical training. So you can do an intense workout at the gym or you can incidentally be walking around and choose to walk up the stairs instead of the um, the elevator So, and you can kind of almost use day-to-day activities as a way of physical fitness. Mm -hmm. Um, So the same with meditation. So mindfulness, you can do the formal meditation practice, which I actually think is essential. I don't think you get, you don't get the the benefits just from being mindful in everyday life, but really in the happiness plan, that's what I go into a lot. There's sort of daily mindfulness practices that range from, you know, how to be mindful in conversation to how to eat mindfully to mindfulness with technology. So there's lots of ways of doing that. And it's really about just the the kind of intention and awareness that you're bringing to all these things that you're doing during the day. Yeah, mindful eating is a huge one for me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm so mindful in a lot of other activities, but that's if I ever get sort of distracted from it, it's when I'm eating because I'm like, I love food, I love appreciating the whole experience, but I'm also busy and doing stuff, and I'm like, so that was that was a great chapter for me. Yeah, 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 I like it too, and it's really become a really popular weight loss 
practice you know that doesn't involve dieting it just involves tuning in and being more connected to yourself as you're eating so that you can pick up the signals of, of hunger yeah and hunger fullness. and fullness yeah and, yeah so second last question just to finish up are the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in interviews well one came up came to mind which was that I've had an array of very interesting tropical diseases oh <laughs> Super interesting from West which Africa. Is, yeah, or yeah, just... which is my kind of my the the remnants of my my adventurous African. time. Yeah, no. So I had I've had pretty severe malaria and I had <gasps> dengue fever. You've had dengue. Yeah, and I had I didn't have tuberculosis, but I got exposed to. Oh. <laughs> it's all right, you're safe. You're safe in West wow. Africa. Yeah, so I've oh, it's all right. Few... I've been to Africa. I came home with parasites. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's how matches started. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. So I've had so th- that that's interesting. It's kind of been a bit of a bummer because it's restricted my my travel to places with dengue, which is pretty much most of the world. Is it because it lays dormant and then if you yeah, get if you get it a again? second time, you, it's very very dangerous. Oh gosh, it rules out barley, which is a bummer. Really? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, okay. they've got a vaccine. There are other so. places. Yeah, yeah, there are other places. As soon as I get the vaccine, I'm heading to to Brazil. Any other things? Yeah, three anything. Things, three things like allergies don't, or no, no, don't normally um, come up. anything about pregnancy or about uh, bad habits or weird cravings <laughs> or <laughs> bad habits, bad habits. Um, oh God, I've got a lot. I don't know how many I want to share. <laughs> yeah. to the ones honest. that you're, you feel like <laughs> dishing up. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I think that one thing that doesn't come up is that people think, you know, when you're teaching meditation, I think people – bring assumptions to what you're like Mm. and what that means and that you you know you you're a very zen person and and I actually think it's kind of the opposite I think that (laughs) I think we teach what we need to learn absolutely and I think well I'll speak for myself I won't speak for other meditation teachers but I'll say that I really do think that I came to this whole realm because I did need to learn and and I have a very active mind and, you know, I'm a do, I'm, I'm like the opposite of Zen actually, you know, I am, I'm a doer. I, I'm constantly doing, I love being creative. I'm, my mind is always thinking. And so I think that's really why this is the work for me in the world because yeah. it's really helped me to find that balance and, you know, the yin and yang kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that's, great as well to know for people out there you don't have to be a zen person yeah. if anything if you're a zen person probably don't need it as yeah, much yeah that's right <laughs> and your third thing oh yeah. <laughs> um do you have any weird party tricks weird party tricks i can lift one eyebrow but that's not so oh weird. that's pretty good it's not so weird um my gosh do you have a middle name yeah it's not so exciting do you speak polish no, I don't. Oh. <laughs> I don't speak Polish. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, three weird things. You've got me. You've got me stumped. <laughs> um, Not speaking Polish was kind of one. Yeah, I don't speak Polish. I've never been to Poland and all four <gasps> of my grandparents are from there. Wow. Yeah. Oh, are any of them alive? No. Oh, that's such a shame. <laughs> oh, you have to go one day. Yeah, one day. One day. <laughs> and final question, since I love motivational quotes so much, what's your favourite quote? Yes, yeah, so the nerd in me wrote this down. <laughs> consult your notes. Yes, consult my Dr. notes. Dr. Elise. <laughs> so I actually had two. So one is from the wonderful Brene Brown, which is talk to yourself like you would talk to someone you love. And I think that's just so helpful. That's where all such 
so simple. We're, we're all so cruel to ourselves. And mm. I think mindfulness has a huge element of developing self-compassion. And I felt yeah. that that's been a really big ingredient to also um, opening up lots of new possibilities for me personally and for the people that I've worked with. And the other quote is Rumi. I think it goes, let yourself be pulled by the strange pull of what you love. It will not lead you astray. Oh, that's such a beautiful one, yeah. especially for seizing your yay and, and finding your yay. If it's pulling you, go towards it. Yeah, I think follow your curiosity and follow what's that sort of soft whisper of what, yeah. what you really love. And, you know, as we've talked about, you don't necessarily have to quit your day job immediately and launch into that, but just follow it. Like, you know, Explore. like the breadcrumbs that yeah. are left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was so wonderful. I could speak to you forever. And yeah, same. It's just, yeah, been absolutely amazing. I will let everyone know in the show notes how they can buy the book because I think it would be, you know, enormously enormously beneficial um i think we're releasing this on international happiness day which is a beautiful thing to celebrate Ooh, well i should say if if it does happen then i'm also running a free live guided meditation for oh. happiness day yeah anyway oh, well, i'll, I'll, I'll send you any relevant well. links yeah and we've yep. got a free uh, free five-day mindfulness challenge as well coming up in april oh perfect and then of course mindful in may so we'll all be yep. ready to get on board for that yeah <laughs> great chatting with you you too Oh, I love getting a different perspective on happiness and digging a bit deeper into the brain. How fascinating are our minds? I really nerd out over that kind of stuff. I find it so interesting. While I believe every day can be World Happiness Day, it is really lovely to have an excuse to reflect on where you are today and how you might be able to refine your happiness practice. So I hope this has given you some more tools and ideas for seizing your yay and maybe even sparked a little bit of reflection. As always, you can find more info in the show notes, including the free meditation that Dr. Elise is hosting today to commemorate International Happiness Day, as well as a few other free guided resources. As usual, we'd love to see some screenshots of how you're spending the day and enjoying the episode, but this time, three lucky listeners who give the best reflections will win a copy of Dr. Elise's book and can join Mindful in May this year for free. So get sharing now, and thank you always for listening. I hope you're seizing your yay.